turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5. And if you need a Bible, uh, these guys have some, so they've come up front. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, then get their attention. They'll get one to you so you can follow along. As we look at a passage in Ephesians 5 in our continuing series in that book over the last many months. At 5.30 a.m., the sky grows pink just above the blanket of mist at the horizon. The early morning light steals its way into my bedroom. Lying next to me, his fuzzy head on the pillow, is my one-year-old son. His deep, luminous brown eyes stare into mine as he drinks his bottle of warm milk. I smell his sweet, pale skin as I nestle my head next to his. The red rays of sunrise outline his head, adorning it with a rim of light, an orange halo. He finishes his bottle. He places his soft little hand on my cheek and pats it, looking and waiting to see what I'll do. Ah, what incredibly tender little creatures babies are, reflecting ten times whatever love they are given. My wife of eleven years of love stirs, opens her gray-green eyes, turns over and looks at me from the other side of his perfect little face. And suddenly he's up on all fours, crawling around the bed. And then he nuzzles his head against my ear, ready to play. Half an hour later, after his screams of laughter have died away, the baby and I lie exhausted on the bed. He's beginning to doze on my shoulder, his body half-curled, scrunched down on my chest. I could lie here all day. This is the world God made. This is love, life and beauty and fulfillment. What a wonderful scene. And Frank Schaeffer, the son of the famous theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer, paints that scene quite beautifully, I think. Now, aside from the particular details, it's clearly a young couple, Frank and, and his wife with their infant child. Aside from the particular details that might not fit your profile, I want you to ask yourself, does that kind of loving contented scene describe my relationships? If it does, then you're the recipient of the grace of God in your family and other relationships. At our house, we sometimes have a meal at the table together. Other times, we each get our food and we go separate ways. But all the time, we pause to gather the four of us, either around the table or sometimes just standing in the middle of the kitchen. And we put our, round, our arms around each other and our heads touching each other like we're a basketball team ready to take the floor. And then we pray together. And I lead our family in a prayer of thanks. And often, one of the things for which I thank the Lord is the love that He has shown us in Jesus and therefore the love that we can have for one another. Because it is indeed His gift. The Bible says we love because He first loved us. And so if you have anything like that kind of close, loving relationship in your family, whether you have children or not, or with your extended family, then thank God for His gift of love. As a matter of fact, just before we move on, let's just take a moment and thank our God for His gift of love in Jesus and the way that can be reflected in our relationships with one another. Our Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ who demonstrated the love that our God is in coming and giving His life for us. We thank You that because of Jesus and because of the Holy Spirit that is given to us when we come to Him, we too can know that love and we can share that love in our relationships. We thank You for the great and marvelous gift that it is. We thank You, Lord, for those families and those relationships even outside of family in which we are able to exercise 
that gift. And I thank you with the hearts, along with the hearts of my brothers and sisters here who have received that gift from you. And yet, Lord, we recognize in a fallen world that relationships are often very strained and that love is not demonstrated. And for those who know they are in relationships such as that, I pray that today and the coming weeks as we look at what you say about how our relationships are to be pursued and our roles within them, that we will begin to demonstrate and experience the love of Jesus Christ and show to the world the love that only he can give because it only comes from him. We pray in his name. Amen. The truth of the matter is that not every family and every person enjoys the kind of loving relationships described in what I read just a bit ago. It's become increasingly rare, in fact, to find people who find their fulfillment channeled through family life. Now, why is that? What has gone wrong? Well, Frank Schaefer goes on to say this. After describing that scene in his bed in the early morning with his wife and child, he says, Outside in the gray, misty morning, a generation of people is running off to work, hoping to make as much money as possible. A few of them still know what it's all about, and they've left their warm, loving homes reluctantly because necessity compels them to shoulder their responsibilities. Others, believing their family relationships are of secondary importance, go off to worship themselves at the shrine of their jobs. They do not believe that fulfillment can be found in the joyful little bundle of life that I have in my arms at that moment. Family life is too confining. They prefer the speed and efficiency of a computer and they bask in its aura. Career, money, these are ultimate values. Home, children, and family life are quite secondary. And in accepting the prevailing myths of their time, those of self-fulfillment, self-assertion, self-actualization, they have become foolish. For they have thrown away the real earthly treasures. Love found within family. Now Frank Schaefer pinpoints the problem of the, with the breakdown of family life at careerism and consumerism. People finding satisfaction in work because of what work can provide. Stuff. And while that diagnosis is good as far as it goes, the truth is careerism and consumerism are only symptoms of a larger problem. The root is an idolatry that looks for satisfaction outside of God. And it results in seeing God-given relationships not as cherished gifts from His hand, but as self-serving tools in our hands. You can know whether your relational desires have become idolatrous by simply looking at what you do when those desires are not met. For the woman idolatrously motivated, any husband who has not met her expectations will pay the price one way or another. And ditto for the husband whose expectations are not met. He'll search for fulfillment in other ways, in escapes like work or sports. He may look for intimacy in other women, live or printed or pixelated on a screen. And her lukewarm, at best very often, approach to him or his escape to find what he wants somewhere else, may, of course, it may end in divorce. But it may, and especially for folks like us in a church like this, where the mores derived from biblical truth dictate divorce is really not an option, except in very rare circumstances. And so it may not end in divorce, 
but rather it'll result in a loveless marriage that saps the joy out of life. And more important than all of that, it will be a marriage that contradicts what we profess to believe. Because you see, my friends, an existence together is not a Christian marriage. And therefore, it cannot fulfill its intended purpose. And its intended purpose is to be a reflection of the love of God to our children, if we are blessed to have children, to the children of your extended family in the church. Have you ever considered that, friends? How you pursue marriage and how it looks to the children in your extended family, the church, who look on and learn but albeit wrongly. Or to the co-workers and friends who never hear you speak of your spouse in flattering ways, if indeed you speak of him and her or her at all. Now how does it get this way? How does something des designed by an all-wise God to be so beautiful become so many times something that is so ugly? As we analyze this and we apply it to marriage, I want to encourage you all here to make a wider application to your own situation. If you're married, the passage we're going to look at in Ephesians 5 has the application very direct. But if you're not married, the principles we'll discuss apply to all of our relationships. And so why do our relationships become a poor imitation of what they were intended to be? Why does marriage so often fail to look as God designed it to be? It's because you went into the relationship as if you own it, rather than God owning it. Now let me say that again. It's because you went into that relationship as if you owned the relationship, rather than God owning it. Now, you may have gotten married in a church <clears throat> with a ceremony that was performed by a minister. And you may have pledged to love her as Christ loved the church or to follow Him in sickness and in health and for better or for worse. But in your deceptive heart, so deceptive that you didn't even know it fully, you harbored an ownership mentality for your marriage. You had and have desires for your spouse to be a particular way, to do and say particular things. And when it did not turn out that way, perhaps not even close to the way you thought, your desires morphed into demands. You see, because I own it, I do with this relationship what I please. God says to humbly defer to the needs of your spouse, but owners don't defer, they demand. God says to humbly seek forgiveness when you sin against your spouse, but owners don't answer to their employees, they demand that they perform. God says endure difficult circumstances and difficult people for the sake of Christ. But owners don't endure. They demand conformity to their desires. And so that raises the question then, professing Christian friend, whose marriage is to be a model of Christ's relationship with his church, who owns your marriage? And if you say God does, then I ask you, if you have children, would they agree with that? God owns this marriage. Would those who've heard you talk about your spouse, even within the church, agree that God owns your marriage? Would your spouse agree that you live like your marriage is owned by God, and therefore it's to be pursued for His purposes? If God owns your relationships, then it follows that we will pursue them the way He says to, does it not? Am I right? 
And so before we get into the passage in Ephesians 5 that we'll spend a few weeks on, talking about wives and husbands, parents and children, let me point out that it's this very issue of ownership that's caused so much confusion in our day about marriage. You see, if God owns marriage, then at least three things are true. These are not in your outline, but if you care to write them down. If God owns marriage, in the wider society, the wider culture, at least these three things are true. The first one is this, that marriage is sacred. Marriage is sacred because it is God's institution. We do not get to do with it just whatever we want. Marriage is His idea. And He desires and He deserves that it be respected. And just as a, an aside, but for me an important aside, that's even true in the ceremony for marriage. God still owns it. Have you ever considered, friends, that a marriage ceremony is a worship service before God? To celebrate this thing that He has given, this good thing that He has given to us? It is not, first and foremost, about the two people being married, as important as that is. It is first and foremost about Jesus Christ and His relationship to the church. And we should treat it accordingly. Now, I'll just say this and I'll move on. But there was this like video that went around on YouTube a few years ago, it went viral, and everybody thought it was really cool that people were doing cartwheels down the aisle. I mean, ain't nobody doing cartwheels here in this worship service. Thank the Lord. We need to treat marriage, including, including the ceremony, as it is. It's an act of worship before God because He owns it. If God owns marriage, he makes the rules. And he says, secondly, not only is it sacred, but secondly, it's the only option for intimacy. From God's perspective, intimacy requires marriage. Or to put it very clearly, you don't have sex unless you're married. According to God. Now, sometimes I have people say, you know, where's the Bible say? You know, looking for an out. And the Bible throughout, when it talks about relationships between men and women and marriage, assumes that this is the vehicle through which sexual expression is to take place. But just to show you one such example, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul writes this command, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. What is being said here is, is if God has not given you the gift of celibacy, which Paul goes on to speak about in 1 Corinthians 7, which he apparently had. But if God has not given you the gift of celibacy, you marry. But until that time, you remain chaste. Those are your options. You either marry or you have celibacy. If you don't have the gift of celibacy, then you marry. Period. It is instructive how many worldlings in our day are shocked that a 24-year-old hunky athlete like Tim Tebow could be a virgin. But it's because he has Christian convictions that inform him that as long as he's unmarried, he's not to engage sexual intimacy. This means you don't live together with a member of the opposite sex to whom you are not married. Or to put it another way, God says you don't shack up, you get married. Now I must really look stupid because I've had people over the years tell me they're living together, but pastors, nothing going on. Now look, I might have been born at night, but not last night. Okay? And even if that were the case, 
What about the testimony of Christ? For those who see your arrangement and who will understandably assume that there's something going on. If God owns marriage, then he defines who it's for. And he says, thirdly, it's for a male and a female. The passage we're going to look at in verse 22 of Ephesians 5 begins with the word wives. And the Greek word that's translated wives is the word from which we get our English word gynecologist. And the word for husbands in the same passage is another word. It's actually related to the word android. And so there is the wife and there is the husband and they are of different genders and that is who marriage is for and them alone. And our culture is completely confused. Because we have forgotten that marriage is God's institution. He owns it. And for the next few weeks, then, in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, we're going to see what God teaches about family and work relationships. Relationships between wives and husbands, parents and children, masters and servants. That is marriage and parenting and employment. Now, we're not going to be able to say, of course, everything that needs to be said in just a few sessions, not even close. These are very important topics, and we can't do them justice in just the short time we have. That's why we offer full classes for parenting, parenting with purpose, or for marriage meant to last. But what we can do is tell you what the Bible says about these important topics in the passage at hand, and provide some indispensable scriptural context to these subjects. And that's what I hope to do. Now, it's been four weeks since we have been in the book of Ephesians, in the series we've been pursuing for the last several months. And last time we were in Ephesians, on December 18th, we saw the passage in chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. In chapter 5 and verse 18, tells us, commands us to be filled with the Spirit. And then in verses 19, 20, and 21, there are four things given that flow from being filled or controlled by the Spirit. One of those in verse 19 is fellowship. We speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And a second of those is worship, because the passage tells us that we sing unto the Lord. And then in verse 20 we are told, a third thing that flows from being filled or controlled by the Spirit, and that is gratitude or thanksgiving to God. And then a fourth and final thing is submission, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, verse 21 gives us that fourth thing that flows out of being filled or controlled by the Spirit. And now, beginning in verse 22 and all the way to chapter 6 and verse 5, there's going to be a full explanation of what submission looks like. This submission that's supposed to flow from being controlled or filled with the Spirit. We're going to see what that looks like in these particular relationships of marriage and of parenting and of employment. And so I invite you to look at the outline that we've inserted in your program. And today we're going to look at verses 22 through 24, and in particular, see the wife's role in submission, in the marriage relationship. Then beginning next week in verse 25 through 33 of chapter 5, husbands, will beat up on you. We'll beat up on you some more today as well. We'll see the husband's role, and then we'll move to chapter 6 in parenting and employment. Today, the wife's role. In verse 22 of Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I say in your outline, first of all, that a wife's role is spiritual. Spiritual. Now, here's why I use that word spiritual. Because verse number 22 says wives are to submit. We'll define formally what submit means in a bit. But wives are to submit to their husbands, and here's why. It is as to the Lord. 
Now, it does not mean that wives are to treat their husbands as the Lord or as a Lord or as a master. But rather, it is as to the Lord, that is, we are doing this as unto the Lord. Because it is the Lord's command and is the Lord's design. And so, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord. It's His design. Now, how do we know it's His design? And I said that we would try to offer some background that informs these commands in your New Testament. And that background goes all the way to the first part of your Bible. And God's first giving of the bride and the first marriage. And so I invite you to hold your finger at Ephesians 5 and turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2. In Genesis chapter 2, God has created Adam and God has created the animals. And he has given Adam, this first man, dominion over the, over the animals. And God is going to have all of the animals that he has created come before Adam. And he's going to parade them before him, two by two, male and female. And he's going to, he's going to have Adam name those animals. And whatever Adam names them, that will be their name. So he's got a large an important task ahead of him to name the animals two by two, male and female. But before God begins that parade of animals, he makes a declaration about the condition of this lone man, this single man, literally, Adam, in the garden. Verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, God announces that the condition that man is in right now is objectively not good. God pronounces it as not good for him to be alone, and God says, I'm going to do something to remedy that situation. And the thing that I'm going to do is provide for him a helper. And so you see in that very word, helper, this notion that the woman who's going to be created is going to assist man in his God-given responsibilities. God announces that in chapter 2 and verse 18, but here's something that you might not catch, and it's important. As the narrative goes forward, God does not immediately fulfill that promise. God says, I'm going to make a helper that's suitable for him, but even though I have pronounced the situation objectively not good, I want Adam to see subjectively, I want him to see personally his need for this helper that I'm going to give him. And how is God going to show Adam that need? Beginning in verse 19. The Lord had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. God says, I'm going to provide this need for you, Adam. But before I do, I want you to see. I want you to feel the need for this gift that I'm going to give you. And so he parades these animals before him. And, animals, and, and Adam sees them, two by two, male and female, and he gets the idea. I'm alone. Not only now is he objectively alone, he now feels his aloneness. And after having now demonstrated that aloneness to him, God then fulfills his promise from verse 18. And in verse 21, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And this first man, who has been prepared now by God to see his need for this good gift from the hand of a good God, sings praise to God in verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. God gives away the first bride. And Adam, 
this first husband happily, gladly, gratefully receives her as God's good gift. Adam's dominion, Adam's authority, God-given, is seen not only in that she was made to be his helper, but also in this whole naming process. Adam named the animals. In the ancient Near East, the idea of naming implies ownership. And Adam not only named the animals, but just take a look at chapter 3 and verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. He named the animals showing his authority over the animals. He named his wife because God had given him headship over his wife, designed in creation. Now I want you to note that this headship that Adam was given over his wife was not because of the entrance of sin. Men were not given this role because sin came in and God now had to place some order. This was God's order in chapter 2 before chapter 3 and the entrance of sin. This was God's original design. This is God's plan from the very beginning. And yet, today we refer to the first sin as the sin of who? We say the sin of Adam. Now what is up with that? Because if you read the dialogue, the woman is yapping a lot. She plays a starring role in this whole situation. You come to chapter 3 and notice at the beginning of chapter 3. Verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now notice who the, the serpent says this to. He said to the woman. Now just hold in your mind a moment this question. Why is it that Satan, in the form of this serpent, is going to the woman rather than the man? Maybe the man's not around. Maybe he's finding food for the family. Maybe he's naming more animals. But just for now, just think about that question. Why the woman? But the serpent says to the woman, and in verse 2, the woman says to the serpent. And then in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman. And then finally, after this dialogue, in verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. The woman is leading this thing. And Satan is very happy to have the woman leading this thing because the woman leading was not God's design. Where's the leader? And verse 6 tells us, She took some and ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Adam is sinfully abdicating his leadership responsibility as he watches his family plunged into sin. And Satan attacks, first and foremost, the order, the God-given creation mandate order of the home. And as a result, their progeny, you and me, are plunged into sin. That's why we call it Adam's sin. Because Adam was responsible for his home. And he failed to take that responsibility. And as a result, we have the first and what we call original sin. And so I say in your outline, a wife's role is spiritual. Meaning, in the words of verse 22 of Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, that this is his design. He is the one who has given headship to the husband. Secondly, in your outline, a wife's role is not only spiritual, because it's God's design, it's from Him, but a wife's role is to be supportive, supportive. Verse 23 tells us, here is why, ladies, wives, you submit. For the husband, for, because, here's why, that's what that word for is about. For the husband is the head of the wife, 
as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And we're going to deal briefly with how men are to exercise this headship because it's implicit in verse 23. And we'll deal with it very explicitly next week when we look at verses 25 and following. But for now, consider that this is the woman's role to support him because he is the head. Why do you submit for because? He has been given this headship. And therefore, it is his role to lead and it is your role to follow his loving leadership. But further, in a practical way, ladies, your husband, if he is going to fulfill his headship, his leadership role, needs your support. Why do you submit for because he's the head? And practically speaking, if he is going to fulfill that role, he needs your support. Now that support can often be very hard for a woman to give for a few reasons. One, God predicted that it would be hard to give. I've told you before, I remind you that when after this first sin, God pronounced curses upon the serpent and upon the man and upon the woman. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, he pronounced a curse upon the woman. And he said to the woman, in pain you will now bear children. And he adds this, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now what does it mean that your desire is going to be for your husband? That doesn't sound like a punishment. It doesn't sound like a bad thing for a woman to desire her husband. But the phrase, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you, is the exact same phrase in Hebrew as found in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. And in Genesis chapter 4, you have recorded there the first murder. Cain murders Abel, and after he has committed this act, God comes to Cain, and he says, Cain, what have you done? And then in verse 7 of Genesis 4, God says to Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It, sin, desires to have you, but you must master it. When it says chapter 4 and verse 7, sin desires to have you, but you must master it. Same Hebrew phrase as chapter 3 and verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. The idea is this, it won't come easy, ladies, for you to submit. Because your desire, like sin's desire, will be to take over. And his sinful response will be to seek to dominate you. And so right in Genesis chapter 3, we have the battle of the sexes. And a wife's role is to be supportive of her husband. Now this idea of a wife submitting to her husband... Would it be fair to say that this is controversial in our day? And here's what's going on, friends. There was a time in the 30s, 40s, 50s, believe it or not, that's before my time, but I've read about it, in which America was ordered in a way that was roughly along the lines, at least externally, of Judeo-Christian mores. And so American families were kind of ordered this way. And so you had shows on TV like Father Knows Best. Some of you might remember or seen some of those reruns. Or Donna Reed, and she's a, she's a housewife. And this is, the, this is the way it was. The men were the leaders, and the women helped the men lead. But over time, books and documentaries began to come out that talked about the, the Stepford syndrome, Stepford wives. Just sort of mindless drones going through this. Betty Friedan in 1963 wrote a seminal book called The Feminine Mystique. And that book appealed to lots of women. It took many by surprise that there were so many women who took to what Betty Friedan was saying, which was, in effect, there's a lot more for you than what you're doing. You're being used and abused. You need to be liberated. And in the 1960s, we had the Women's Liberation Movement. Now, why was it that so many women were apparently chafing under that system? Here's why. Hear this. 
Ladies, in order for you to play this supportive and submissive role to which God has called you in your marriage, in order for you to not only play that role, but to enjoy that role and love that role, it requires nothing less than the Spirit of Almighty God. A woman who does not have the Spirit of Christ controlled by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, from which submission flows in all of our relationships, cannot be expected to be satisfied in the domestic duties of family life. And indeed, that's what we found. But see, you're not every wife if you know Jesus. And if you have the Spirit, you're equipped to love what God has designed for you to do. Now, in verse 23, not only is the woman's supportive role given, and practically the man needs it because he is called to a very difficult responsibility, but men, we are also given a hint as to how we're to lead in verse 23. Because it tells us that this is to be done. Our headship of the wife is to be done as Christ is the head of the church of which he is the Savior. And so this leadership is to be exercised in a way that is consistent with the way our loving Savior leads His church. Contrary to the sinful, domineering approach that so many men want to take, even in the name of Christ, that says, I'm Tarzan, you're Jane. You do what I say, woman. That's not how Christ treats His, his church. And we're going to see next week, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ love the church. A wife's role is spiritual. A wife's role is supportive. And thirdly, in your outline, a wife's role is indeed submissive. Verse 24 says again, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit to their husbands in everything. I said we define the word submit. What's it mean? The word submit means literally this, to place under. So sub, when you see sub, so a subway goes under the road, a submarine goes under the water. Submit means under something, to place under. And in the case of a wife to her husband, it is to place under the headship of her husband. But we are called to mutual submission as well, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're going to see there's a sense in which husbands submit to their wives, not to their headship, but men will see next week to their needs as we lovingly lead them. Place yourself under, ladies, the headship of your husband. Now here's what submission then does not mean. I have in your outline, it does not mean spiritual inequality, inequality. It does not mean that. The Bible is very clear that male and female, man and woman, are equal before God in their essence, in their value, who they are as created in His image. No difference in terms of their status before God as creatures and as children of God, of God if they've come to Christ. If you care to jot down Galatians 3.28, in Christ there is neither, it says, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. Or you might jot down 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. In 1 Peter chapter 3, after six verses talking about woman's, the woman's responsibility, the wife's responsibility to submit to her husband, it then says in verse 7, Husbands, you are to treat her as co-heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So it does not mean any spiritual inequality. It's a matter of the role we play, not the essence we possess. Equality of worth is not equality of role. Equality of worth is not equality of role. And we see this in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. He is fully God. The Bible teaches that. To teach anything else is heretical. He is fully God, and yet in His role as God the Son, He submits to the will of the Father, the headship of the Father. Likewise, the wife, equal with the husband, submits in her role 
to the headship of the husband. It does not mean then spiritual inequality. Secondly, it does not mean mindless obedience. Mindless obedience. That is, it is not the woman's role to simply passively say, your wish is my command, master. She owes it to her husband as his helper to use the gifts and abilities that God has bestowed upon her to give him the benefit of her counsel. To tell him when he is wrong, respectfully. To aid him in the work that he is doing as the leader of the home. It is not mindless obedience. And obviously, I trust, it never means that you disobey a command of God because your husband requires it. What kind of example could you give of that? If you were married to an unsaved husband and he said, I don't want you to attend church on Sunday. God says God's people gather together on the Lord's Day. And so that would be a command that an obedient wife could respectfully say, as with Peter before the ruling Jewish authorities in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. It is not spiritual inequality or mindless obedience. But here's what it does mean, ladies, in your outline. It does mean trusting Christ in all things. Submitting to your husbands. Placing yourself under the headship of your husbands does mean trusting Christ in all things. You see, the truth of the matter is, we men are very often not worthy of your fellowship because of our lack of leadership. Many of us here know that that's true of us. And yet God says, you follow the leadership of your husband. And one question that often arises is, but what if my husband is not worthy, as many are not, even those who profess the name of Jesus? What about that? It's the last passage to which we'll turn, but it's an important one in this regard. We take a look at the back of your Bible, the almost the very end of your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, and then going all the way into chapter 3 and verse 7. The entire theme from 1 Peter 2.13 to chapter 3 and verse 7 is all about this very topic of submitting, placing yourself under in various relationships. And it starts out in verse 13 talking about placing yourself under the authority of the government. By the way, my tea party friends, did you all hear that? Just wondering, everybody awake? Placing yourself under the authority of the government. Who was the government at that time? Well, it must have been a good government. I mean, there must have been Republicans, <laughs> you know, running things, right? No, say Nero, and he was crazy, and he killed Christians, but you submit. And then in verse 18, slaves, you submit to your, to your masters. And then it goes on, slaves submit to your masters with all respect, verse 18. Now notice this part, not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And then you come to chapter 3 and verse 1. Wives, likewise, like that, like verse 13, like verse 18, submit to your own husbands. Now if that's going to happen, ladies, if you're going to submit, place yourself under, you've got... A difficult task indeed. In fact, in your own strength, an impossible task. Why? Because of the effects of sin and the pronouncement of God Almighty in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, that this would be a difficult task. And also because the one to whom you are to submit is often unworthy of your fellowship. Ladies, hear this. You do not submit because He is worthy. You submit because Christ is trustworthy. You trust Christ in all things. You do it because He said to do it. 
You do it because his honor is extolled. You do it because you believe that he can work in this situation and in the heart of that husband and use the support that you give to make him the man that God has called him to be. Submission always, always has vulnerability associated with it, does it not? We submit to the government, that makes us vulnerable, doesn't it? Submit, ladies, to your husbands, you submit to your employer, you're vulnerable, especially if it's a bad government, a bad boss, a bad husband. But that vulnerability can be overcome by the power of our God and His grace in that relationship. So, ladies, what do you do in playing your role, demonstrating the control of the Spirit in your submission in the marriage relationship? Quickly, four things. Trust Christ. Confess sin. Confess your unwillingness to do this. Confess it to God. Confess it to your husband. Maybe confess it to your girlfriends with whom you've talked about your husband. Encourage your husband. Thirdly, you know, even if he's not what he should be, there are things you can still appreciate about him. Hear this. He doesn't need to be all he should be in order for you to be able to appreciate some of what he is. Tell him and encourage him in what you appreciate. And then fourthly, pray. And then here's a fifth one. Delight. Take joy that God is going to work in your obedience in that relationship. I have in your take-home truth that wives reflect Christ when they joyfully play the role he has given in the home.